Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you again to our Sunday service. Our sermon series this summer is on the book of Isaiah, and we're calling it The King of Justice Who Redeems. And the reason why we're calling it that is because there are many themes in the book of Isaiah, like the theme of justice. That's a big one. But these themes are set against the backdrop of two huge overarching truth. The first is that God is a king. He's a king of highest glory. He is holy, majestic, unique, separate, high and lifted up. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. God is absolutely set apart from all of creation. He is most righteous and just. He's worthy to be feared and worshiped. That's the first truth. The second truth is that this great sovereign and holy God, although he has every right to be just and condemn his people for their sin, he doesn't. He sends his servant to rescue and redeem his people. And just as every theme in Isaiah is set against the backdrop of these two truths, what would our lives look like if we set every experience, every relationship, every ambition, fear, and threat against the same backdrop of these two truths? What does a global pandemic and its ripple effects economically, socially, politically, psychologically look like in light of these truths? How can we evaluate racial injustice and racial reconciliation in light of these two truths? How do these truths inform my past, all my lived experiences? What about my present struggles and concerns? What about my future goals and ambitions? The book of Isaiah is much needed for us today. And the first half of Isaiah, from about chapters 1 to 39, it's predominantly about judgment. But here in our passage today, in these first five verses of chapter 2, we're given a brief glimpse of what the king's peace 
looks like. And it's just a glimmer, a hint, a taste, because the rest of chapter two, it jumps back into words of judgment. Verse two says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And the latter days can also be translated the end days. What we have here is a spoiler. My kids are the worst at keeping secrets. If I tell them, hey, don't tell mommy about this surprise for her, okay? They'll keep it for about one minute max until they spoil the ending. Because for them, the reveal is too good for them to hold on to. And I love that as God writes the story of redemption, he tells it to us in the Bible, he can't help himself. And he includes spoiler after spoiler of how the story is going to end. Except this ending is so good. It's so beautiful that it can't possibly be spoiled. And even as God is passionately condemning his people, he can't help but promise them redemption. So what we have here, it's a picture. It's a photograph of the end, of the ultimate and eternal peace of the king. And I want to look at three aspects of this peace this morning. The king's peace is a supernatural peace. It's a diverse peace. And it's a redemptive peace. First, this is a supernatural, a divine peace. There are words, these are, are words shown to Isaiah by God the King. You know, it matters who's saying it. So for instance, I can tell you that in one year's time, COVID-19 will be a distant memory. President Kanye West will have restored the economy and achieved racial justice and reconciliation for this country. I can tell you that there will be peace in Hong Kong peace in North Korea, peace in the Middle East. But you know what? It won't mean anything. I, I have no authority. I have no expertise. You would be right to dismiss me. But who is declaring this peace in our passage? The king who spoke the universe into existence. The king of kings the Lord of Lords, the God Almighty and Eternal, the Alpha and the Omega, to whom the future belongs. This is his peace. Doesn't it feel as though sometimes things will never change? The world will never get better. You know, in society, we have cycle after cycle of violence and injustice. Layers upon layers of centuries of systemic oppression that are impossible to untangle and make sense of. And then you have the immediate politicizing of every issue, which leads to further division and disunity. In nature, we have hurricanes, we have earthquakes, we have tsunamis, we have cancer. And now over 15 million confirmed global cases of COVID-19. And when this threat eventually passes, what's next? Do you ever despair that things will never get better? Verse two, 
God says, it shall come to pass. Not it might come to pass. Or it's possible that it'll come to pass. Or wouldn't it be great if it came to pass? It shall. It's guaranteed to happen. This is something that no human can guarantee. At best, we're capable of wishful predictions and logical estimations of the future. And the other thing is, this peace is not conditional upon us in any way. There's no if. If you obey, you will receive peace. If you are faithful, it doesn't depend on any human endeavor. It's completely out of our control. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. The mountain of the house of the Lord in this verse is Mount Zion. And you know, we're not talking about Mount Everest or K2. We're talking about barely a mountain, more like a hilltop, not impressive by any human metrics or standards. It's not on any mountain climber's bucket list. And back in Isaiah's day, people set up their shrines of worship on the highest mountains to be closer to heaven. But God chooses this unimpressive hill to be the place where he is to be worshipped. And then what does he do? He says that it shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. God is going to raise this mountain to be the highest mountain. When was the last time you saw a mountain raised? If I were to collect the finest minds on earth today, the most preeminent scientists, they would probably be able to destroy a mountain, right? They can split the atom after all. Enough nuclear weapons should do the trick. But if I gave them a lifetime, would any of them be able to raise a hill to become the highest mountain? No human can do this. It is a supernatural peace. God can raise this hill so unimpressive by worldly standards to be the highest of mountains. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The next image is that of a human river. And this river flows to and up a mountain. And that means it goes against gravity. Because rivers typically flow from mountains out to the sea. In nature, mountains are the source, not the destination of rivers. And rivers, they don't flow from the ground up, they flow down. This is not a natural river. It's not bound to the laws of nature or gravitational forces. It flows up to God. And again, what human could possibly engineer this? 
Does it feel as though this world is headed downward? That things will never improve? This world, nature, it's fallen, it's broken, it's dying. And this is why we need a supernatural, a divine peace. And the next thing we see is that this peace is diverse and unifying. All the nations, many people flow to it. God's vision at the end, it's not monocultural, but multicultural. All the nations come and are united in worship of God. Ethnic diversity in God's story is intentional and celebrated. The metaphor of a river is very appropriate because rivers begin at the source very narrowly, and as the rivers flow out from the source, they become broader. Similarly, race in God's plan happens this way. God creates man and woman in his image, one race. But he organizes his people as they grow in a variety of ethnic groups. So in Genesis 11, God's people are unified, but sinfully. They're unified in their desire to make a name for themselves, rather than glorifying God. And they say to each other, hey, let's build ourselves the Tower of Babel that will reach to the heavens. So God confuses their language, and then he separates them. He deliberately institutes cultural division to disperse the people. And this is where the ethnic lines begin to solidify. That's Genesis 11. And what does God do in Genesis 12, the very next chapter? In his plan of redemption, he chooses Abram, whose name means exalted father. He's the patriarch of one ethnic group. But when God establishes his covenant with Abram, he changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. God's plan, even as he's dispersing the people and scattering them, is to one day gather and unify them. Not at a man-made tower, but at this mountain, which he will raise to the heavens. So at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, he reverses the curse of Babel. Because at Babel, God confused the languages and separated the people. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit separates onto each person. And everyone's confused, but they're amazed. They're, they're not confused because they can't understand each other, but they're amazed because they're hearing God's word preached to them in their own language. Wait, aren't these people Galileans? How can they speak my language? At Pentecost, God doesn't make everyone speak the same language again, but he speaks to them in their own languages. God's plan from the very beginning was to save a racially diverse people. And we see a beautiful picture of this in Revelation 7. The Apostle John has a vision of what the end will look like. He says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Everyone is included. But not only is everyone included, everyone is elevated. There's no such thing as privilege at this mountain. No one is further up than anyone else. No one has closer access. No one is advantaged or disadvantaged. In fact, here's what the people say to each other in verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They say to each other, Come on, let's go together. I'll wait for you. I'll hold your hand. We'll go up the mountain together. You need help? I got you. There's no such thing on this mountain as white supremacy or white nationalism. But there's also no white normativity. You don't have one race saying to another, let me teach you my ways so you can walk in my paths. You have to do things my way. You have to walk in my paths. They say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You know, one of the biggest struggles in the early church was the issue of Jewish priority. Were Jews the privileged people of God? Did Gentiles need to become Jews first before they could become Christians? Did worship of God necessitate Jewish normativity? And to this, the Apostle Paul speaks very clearly in Galatians 3. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The king's peace is a diverse peace that unifies all races and nations. And finally, this peace is a redemptive peace. It is one in which the king redeems his people. You know, if you were to poll a room full of non-Christians and ask them, how do we get peace in this world? How can, we, how can peace be achieved in this world? The answers would vary. And, and they would vary based on political affiliation, ideology, lived experiences, or religious worldviews. So a liberal progressive might say, we can't have authoritarian governments. We can't have social elites who consolidate power and wealth. We have to redistribute wealth and rebalance the scales of power. And a conservative might say, no, we need less government regulation. We need the free market. A Muslim might point to submission to Sharia law. A Buddhist might point to inner harmony, freedom from worldly attachments. The answers will vary. And they're also going to vary across racial lines. Black, brown, white, Asian. 
They're going to vary across economic classes, whether you're privileged or oppressed. They're going to vary according to nationality. Are you a citizen? Are you an immigrant? Are you a refugee? But the answer for us Christians, the answer for peace in our passage is clear. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. God's law, God's word, God's justice all lead to God's peace. No system of earthly government, no policy initiatives, no economic plans, no attempts toward racial reconciliation can achieve this peace. One day, God's law will be obeyed. His word will be embraced. His justice will be welcomed. Look at verse 4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Weapons of warfare, swords, spears, they're going to be redeemed. And then they're going to be used for cultivating the land. Not only the weapons themselves, but even the ability to use the weapons are going to be removed. It says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. The nations aren't even going to know how to lift up the swords or use the swords against other nations. But you know what? It's not only the means of war or the practice of war, but also the mentality of war that will also be removed. It says, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, in our country, a huge political debate is gun control. And Second Amendment issues aside, you have one party arguing that guns need to be taken away. And the other side says, guns don't kill people, people kill people. I'll tell you, this will not be a debate on this mountain. Because the guns will be redeemed. People won't even know what to do with them. And the desire to ever use them will be gone. Can you imagine a world like this? Imagine the absence of weapons of war. Imagine the absence of any violent or oppressive impulses. What will social media look like when there is no cancel culture? When there is no more racialized violence, no more viral videos of injustice? Can you imagine a world in which all the energy spent in hating others is now applied toward cultivating human flourishing. Now, this might seem like nothing more than a utopian fantasy, but the only way this will ever happen is if people are truly transformed from the inside out. The, ho the hostility that exists in our hearts needs to be eradicated. And there's only one person who can and has truly accomplished this. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus himself is our peace. And through his death upon the cross, he reconciled us all together in God, thereby killing the hostility. And Paul tells us that in Christ, we're being built as God's temple. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple. And do you know where that temple is being built? First Peter 2 says, that cornerstone and that temple are in Zion, this mountain. So what does that mean for us? It means the church is the city on a hill, the mountain to which the nations come. And it may not seem like much now. The church is full of flaws and warts and mistakes and sins and abuses, but God will one day establish his church as the highest of mountains and lift it up above the hills. This passage, it's not just pie in the sky wishful thinking. And it's not just a future hope that we have waiting for us someday. Look at verse five. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it's almost the same thing that the nations say to one another in verse three, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. But here in verse five, the prepositions are different. O house of Jacob, O church, come, let us walk in the light of the world, of the Lord. The world will one day come to the mountain, but today, we walk in the light of the Lord. This means that we as Christians, we are called to embody and demonstrate to this world what a transformed community looks like. We're to show the world a, a preview of how the story ends. We're to be spoilers of the ending. We show them what divine peace and diverse unity look like. We don't take up arms, but we beat our weapons of hate, racism, violence into redemptive tools of blessing. And this also means that we can think critically about what principles, what institutions, policies can maximize human freedom here and now. We can fight against oppression and we can live for human flourishing today. And we do it while proclaiming the good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself is our peace. Friend, if you're a Christian and if you've been marching, protesting, standing for peace, know this, you have a much fuller, 
more comprehensive, more realistic understanding of peace than the non-Christians marching next to you. Do not be ashamed of this peace. Never surrender this peace, but look to the mountain in hope. We know how the story ends. And until that ending comes, we are part of this great and glorious story of redemption. So Exilic Church, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this good news. That while so often it feels like things will never change, that things will never get better, that things are only going to get worse. God, you have given us a glimpse of the end and it is glorious. So I pray that you would give us much hope for the future, but also a motivation today to go and to live, to tell the world of our Savior who comes, but also to live demonstrating to this world what it looks like when we know Jesus. So bless your church now. Sustain your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to have a time of offering. So let's give to the Lord in light of everything that he has given to us.